song either. Hi, my name is John McAdam, and this is Stick to Wrestling. Give us 60 minutes, and perhaps indeed, we will give you a Raw Bone podcast. Sure, sure, there are some good podcasts out there, but how many of them are wicked good? Let's ask the guys from Yellow Card. That's right, Yellow Card. I did that to you guys. And with that, I would like to bring on my convivial co-host, Mr. Sean Goodwin. Sean, how are you today? I am just back from the Virgin Islands, so I'm fantastic. Do you know what else is also wicked good? No, That would be our Facebook page. I was getting to it. That would be our Facebook page. And if you have not joined the Facebook page yet, this is the enlightenment that you've missed this past week. Who did Bob Backlund beat 40 years ago? How bad could Lahansen's Lariat actually be? What were the specifics to Paul Jones' marketing deal with Carl's Auto Body and used tuxedos? 23416 West Wendover, Greenboro, North Carolina. Was there a day of training at the Snake Pit defending attacks from Ramada in Forks? All that plus John's daily results from around the world links to our YouTube clips and old school videos. And if you not only is it free, if you uh, join right now, you can get a discounted John McGatta replica skinny tie for $79.99. That's a limited time offer. And let's hear it for the boy. Sean does a really good job adding content, content to that Facebook page. So thank you for that, Sean. And with that, before I bring on my guest, I'm going to go on a mini rant, Sean. I'm not as like livid as I was Thursday over the when I got the results of the WWE uh, Saudi Arabia show but basically they had AJ Styles do a quick job to The Undertaker and they made Goldberg the new WWE champion they took a guy two years younger than me and made him champion of the world let me explain what this is okay it's 2020 This would literally be the equivalent of if during a mid-80s Starcade, they brought Rip Hawk and Sweet Hansen out of retirement and had them beat the the Rock and Roll Express or the Midnight Express. This is like dragging George Becker out of the old folks' home and putting him over Dusty Rhodes. This is like making Johnny Weaver the NWA champion. I'm not kidding. Those were the top guys in the Carolinas in the mid sixties. And it would be like doing that at Starcade, and it's freaking ridiculous. And we know that it's just the beginning that triple H is going to make his annual appearance. And he's going to be in a big match against a big star. It's like, they're saying to us, the real stars who are in their mid fifties, they don't have time to be on raw. They don't have time to be on SmackDown. They don't have time to be on the road. They just come out of retirement once every spring, and they're the important guys. And then they're like, oh, why can't AJ Styles or why can't Seth Rollins get over like Steve Austin and The Rock used to be over? I've given you the answer. It's because WWE books their current stars into the ground. (sighs) I'm done. Hold on real quick. I said I wasn't going to say anything, but I changed my mind. First is, as far as Goldberg. I'd rather have George Becker. I'd rather have George Becker now, and he's been dead for 20 years. I, 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 after what I saw last time, you, we, I went through a major tangent about him in the ring. That was dangerous, him in the ring with The Undertaker at that pay-per-view. Okay, yes. He really shouldn't be in the ring if that's what we're looking at now. I could at least trust George Becker to, you know, or, or Johnny Weaver not to get somebody killed. So, you know, let's start there. 
And of course he shouldn't be in there. And this further emphasizes the moving away of the audience and just popping for the TV product, which, you know, that's the entire show now. So they can book stuff this way. And that's why you can never get somebody over. I mean, somebody new over. Yeah, I mean, it, it's okay if you're booked for TV. I'm fine with that. I, I think wrestling, you know, it's okay that they got away from being a, a, a touring company and, and more of a television product. That's fine. It's just that, you know. But you October, can't go the other way on it, the whole way. I mean, you have to have a, a, a medium. Yeah, right. And I'm just saying that, like, that's why, you know, you don't, the WWE does not have anyone over the way Hulk Hogan was over. The way, you know, The Rock, Austin, even the way Mick Foley was over. You just don't have it anymore, and that's why. It's not the fault of the talent. It's the fault of the company because they do not know how to push the current product, or, or they just don't want to. It's, it's ridiculous. Also, Hulk Hogan had been perfecting that act for two years in front of ho- on house shows. Good, I mean, good point. I mean, you know, it's a different business, but I mean— Again, Hogan was over. Ultimate Warrior was over. No one's over today, and I'm, and this is why. And it's not the fault of the wrestlers. I, you can't blame the wrestlers at all. But anyway, I we have a really special guest this week. Twenty five years ago, could have been twenty five years ago today. For all I know, it was like late February, early March, nineteen ninety five, where I got on this newfangled thing called the internet which now dominates our lives, but there was a time where it didn't exist for most of us, uh, for any of us. And the first friend I met on the internet was a gentleman named Ricardo Coleman. We met on the AOL forums. He's a really good guy, and I finally have him on today. Ricardo, thank you for coming on. Uh, I happen to be on with you guys, man. I really love the show, and uh, it's been a long time coming. (laughs) It has been. It has been. This is episode 91. You should have been on episode two. By the way, this hey. is no exaggeration. We've been talking about this show now for months. Yeah. Months. I mean, maybe four or five months ago, I say to Brian last, I'm like, hey, I'd like to have Ricardo Coleman on. And Brian's like, no, he's going to be on the 605. I'm like, God damn it. You stole him from me. That's not fair. <laughs> Joe was about to lead a revolt of Arcadian Vanguard. I was lost. Hey, 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 Hostile hey, hey. takeover. You know, he was so mad. We finally you know got him down, me and Lou. You know, it's his network, so, you know, I guess he just felt like he had first dibs. But I enjoyed doing that show, too, Brian. Yeah, just wanted to know. Fine product. Now, Mm -hmm. Ricardo grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, which means that he grew up watching Mid-South Wrestling. He started watching in 1980 and held on until the bitter, brutal end when Crockett tore it down in 1987. So you were a big fan back then, and you once told me, I thought was a fascinating story, about how when Mid-South Wrestling was on, I think you said four in the afternoon on Saturdays, it was like the streets were deserted. No one was out doing anything. Everyone was home watching Mid-South. It seemed that way. You know, there were a couple of times where I would miss a show, you know, because I was out running errands uh, with my family or whatnot, and you know, they weren't people in the grocery stores. They weren't people out and about. There were people who were at home watching wrestling. It was just, you know, it was something that you did. And it's not like there's nothing to do in New Orleans either. And it's not like New Orleans didn't have sports teams. Oh, my goodness. I mean, well, the Saints weren't that good at that time. They were pretty but, bad. You know, right. They were pretty bad. But, you know, you know, it's a lot of um, recreational activities. 
fishing, uh-huh. hunting, you know. So to have something like wrestling be a communal, you know, event, I mean, it was pretty incredible. Was it something that, like, when I went to school, both in North Attleboro, Mass, and Nashua, New Hampshire, like, no one talked about wrestling in school. It was like a secret. You were uncool if you watched it. Was it like that growing up in New Orleans? Oh, absolutely not. It was it was water cooler talk. You know, it was kind of like, think about it. Well, I'm old enough to remember uh, the old TV show Dallas, right? Uh-huh. And at one time, that was the biggest television show in the world. And everybody was talking about it. And if you weren't talking about it, you weren't cool. And that's the way it was with, uh, with Mid-South. If you weren't talking about it, you weren't cool. Because everybody was, was talking about it. So, you know, it's a little bit different here. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you had Junkyard Dog. We had Bob Backlund. I think that might be one factor in there. I understand. (laughs) (laughs) So did you go to to a lot of house shows back in the day? Uh, As many as uh, we could afford. Superdome shows were a little bit tough. Um, We did manage to make a few of those. But uh, the weekly shows at the Municipal Auditorium, we tried to go as, as much as we could. And, and um, those were great. Uh, that building was great for wrestling. The acoustics, the seating. You know, it was pretty dark in there, but that's the way it was back then. Focus the lights on the ring, on the action in the ring. And for that, it was perfect. I, I miss those days. I mean, when, when the only light in the arena was on the ring because that's what mattered. Tell me your favorite memory from attending a show in Mid-South. Well, it was, it was a house show, and um, it was two memories. I can remember when Dog was blinded, right? Yep. And I can remember my aunt going around to the hospitals looking for Sylvester Ritter <laughs> to find out if he, was, uh, you know, if he was there and if he was going to be okay. Oh, that's we, crazy. We that's everything. awesome. Second memory I have is, is you know, not not that exciting, but we went to a house show, and I think it might have been 1983, and Tony Zane was a a job guy there at the time. And I remember the crowd was pretty quiet, and Tony Zane took a powder. He jumped out of the ring, and I remember yelling, coward, and it just reverberated off the walls, you know, and I felt like everybody was looking at me. It was like, well, isn't he a coward? He jumped out of the ring, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So that, that was one of my memories, you know, getting in, you know, getting involved with the show, even even uh, on that small scale. Uh, that is super cool. I, I mean, I I wish I could see some of the things you saw growing up in Louisiana as a Mid South fan. Yeah, it was it was pretty entertaining. Uh, I can remember DiBiase was a, was a crowd favorite, and so when he turned. You know, it was like people felt personally betrayed and just the, you know, people were just venomous when it came to DiBiase. They loved JYD, but it might surprise a lot of people, but Mr. Wrestling 2 was really over in New Orleans, really over. You know, people just loved him. I I thought his turn on Magnum TA in 1984, that whole story where he became Magnum TA's coach, and slowly but surely, Mr. Wrestling 2 started souring on Magnum TA, and Magnum remained loyal to mm-hmm. Mr. Wrestling 2 as long as he possibly could. And then mm-hmm. 
Mr. Wrestling 2 got a new protege, Mr. Wrestling 3, and Mr. Wrestling 3 was nowhere near as loyal to him as Magnum was. Let me tell you about that angle. I want you to. So, you know, some people may, you know, they may not feel me on this, but just work with me here. That was almost like watching an abusive relationship play out. Yes. And, you know, we've seen, you know, unfortunately, you know, my upbringing and and, and a lot of people's upbringing, we've seen abusive relationships play out. You know, you might have friends that are being abused and you want them to just say, hey, I've had enough and I'm leaving. Right. And that's how we looked at Magnum. Like, why doesn't he leave? Why doesn't he stand up for himself? And so when he finally did, it was a release. It was a release for everybody. So they really, really, really did a, a fantastic job mapping that entire story from beginning to end. You know, I, I think possibly it was probably the best thing they ever did. Or you could say the JYD blinding angle was one, and TA and, and Mr. Wrestling 2 might be one, one B, one A and one B. I mean, the storytelling Mid South did was phenomenal. The, the JYD lining angle started with Ken Mantell being on TV, uh, and he, after he finished a guy off, he would cut off a big block of his hair, and he said he would brand the guy. Like, he would rem- that cutting his hair would remind him of, you know, who was number one, Ken Mantell. And through a long, winding road, that's how Junkyard Dog got blinded by Michael Hayes. Yeah, the, the Freebird hair cream or the Ken Mantell hair cream was like uh, almost like a MacGuffin, wasn't it? It was Very Paul nice. Orndorff. Paul Orndorff came out with the hair cream as a, you know because Ken Mantell cut his hair, and Michael Hayes borrowed the hair cream out of Ken Mantell's gym bag. It was it was phenomenal. Hold on, let me stop exactly. for a quick second. By the way, Ricardo, an outstanding use of MacGuffin. Um, well, I just want to do a I just wanted to quickly explain what a MacGuffin is. It's an old Alfred Hitchcock term for something that just kind of moves the plot along, but has nothing to do with the story. But it had everything. You know, it was a little bit different. Right. It has it nothing but everything. everything. Yeah. Right. But it was really so, about the free you know, birds and the dog, but that was the kind of the thing that ignited it. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, that thing changed hands, and then finally it ended up in the, the wrong hands. And so JYD gets blinded for, what, nine weeks, I think. and we take it from there. Now, an aside about the blinding, after he got blinded, he did not leave his house for nine weeks, right? Well, I think John has a story about the time that he actually left the house. <laughs> I heard a story a long time ago that JYD showed up at the Mid-South office right after the blinding, and Bill Watts was just like, by leaving your house, you're going to kill our territory. No one can see you. No one can see that you're not blind. And supposedly on, I mean, it's always hot in Louisiana. I think this was April, 1980. JYD Ooh. had to get in the trunk of Grizzly Smith's car. And that's how Grizzly Smith got him back home and make sure no one saw him. And supposedly JYD was like, you know, in that trunk being in that hot trunk being like, Oh my God, this is not how I want to die. Well, you know, I don't know what he was complaining about. At least he didn't turn out like Billy Bats from uh, Goodfellas, right? (laughs) (laughs) No one knows what happened to him. Right, right, right. Well, you know, what I heard happened 
No, I think, you know, his ride was a little bit better than Billy than Billy's, you know, so. <laughs> uh, here's your shine box. But anyway, yeah, and supposedly <laughs> JYD was getting mail from people who were sending him like five, ten dollars. Just, you know, hey, I know what it's like not being able to work. I'm going to help you out as much as I can. Well, it was, you know, JYD was, was a working class hero, you know, which is what I think Watts was going for. I think he was looking for that working class hero, but also he had to be ethnic or he happened to be ethnic. And man, you know, as far as getting five and $10 in the mail for not even, you know, showing up to work, that's not a bad gig. <laughs> it wasn't just one it was like supposedly his mailbox was overflowing but anyway i mean it just just goes to show you like how seriously people in mid-south took their mid-south wrestling well they took it seriously they believe well okay so we knew there was something up but there were guys you know watch was smart enough to have guys in the territory that made you believe in them yeah and you know and and as long as you believe in them the product maintain credibility. Yeah, I, I've said this before on the show. I mean, me and my friends, when we watched wrestling, the rule was you turned your brain off and just pretended it was real, like you were watching a movie. I mean, you don't pick the movie apart. We didn't pick the wrestling apart. But when watching Mid-South, we often got carried away uh, with the emotions. It was really easy for you to lose yourself in it, you know, because oh, yeah. it was just so... It was so compelling. And, you know, you might be sitting in your chair at the beginning of the show and then something happens and immediately you're jumping out of your chair. It was like watching Rocky Four in the theaters. A, a quick question about the Louisiana part, because because we were talking about this before. And a lot of fans from Louisiana, when I ask, when did you start watching? They'll say 1980. And that's when Bill Watts came in. and They brought the dog in. If you get the old uh, you know, McGurk territory, this focus seemed to be more on the Oklahoma kind of the end of it. Whereas when Bill came in, they brought in the dog and they brought in the dog to open up Louisiana. Was there any kind of a shot? I mean, was it just that it was before your time or was it really a big deal before the dog showed up? How important was the dog to uh, New Orleans and Louisiana? Uh, how, see, like, how can you compare it? Well, see, it's kind of hard for me to say because, you know, I only have faint memories of, of what went on before. I think the only thing I can remember is maybe the, the show opening. But I can tell you, dog was important because the people here in New Orleans identified with an underdog, and that's the way that they presented him in the beginning. If you remember, he lost uh, most of his matches. Um, he was a job guy. I don't know if that was the plan. I don't know, you know, what the deal was with that. And so when he started winning, when he started teaming him, I think he started teaming with. Gino Hernandez, of all people. And then Ernie Ladd came in, and then he did the turn. And then eventually Dog started teaming with Buck Robley. And I think that's really when he got over, is when he started teaming with Buck Robley, and they would push uh, the wheelbarrow out. He was just working class. And, you know, New Orleans is a working class town, probably a little bit more so back in those days. And so they just identified with this guy. And then he had the gift of gab. He spoke like the people here from New Orleans. You know, he had this colorful way of speaking that some people of a different culture may not be able to understand. But the people here, they understood him perfectly. You know, he was going to go downtown. 
and he was going to kick somebody's hind end. And that's all we needed to know. We were good with that. What could you? It's such a strange team. Could you explain the dynamic a little bit? Because there's so little footage of them, of Buck Robley and JYD, and why that dynamic worked. It was just, it was more like a comedy situation. You know, Dog will come out with car batteries and just like car parts in a wheelbarrow. And Robley would be sitting in the wheelbarrow with, I mean, he might have a colander on his head. He might have spark plugs sticking out of his uh, shirt. It was a comedy thing at first. And, you know, it just looked like they were having the time of their lives. And they would just climb into the ring and beat the hell out of somebody in about a minute or two. And I think that helped them to get over quick wins on television. And so I think, you know, you can have a little bit of ha-ha in wrestling if it leads to something a little bit more serious. So when they got into it with the Freebirds, that was the something more serious. You know, we just followed them along. You know, we were along for the ride. And the, th- the thing with Bucky is that, yeah, how much did you see a lot of improvement? It's kind of hard to tell. I know you were young. But, I mean, did mm-hmm. that benefit his ex- – because he was known for having a great mind, great wrestling mind. I mean, he was irascible, but he was also – had that kind of great mind for the business. Did you see them getting – like, Dog really kind of getting a lot out of that that relationship? Well, you know, looking back, yeah, I think I think he did get a lot out of that relationship because, you know, you mentioned Buck being a rascal. I mean, that's just the type of person that we love in New Orleans. We love – uh, rogues. We love uh, rascals. We love scoundrels. And Buck Robley was all of those things. And so by associating him, associating the dog with Buck Robley, it was, just, it was a masterstroke. I don't know if it was a thing that they did on purpose, but you know, however it happened, it worked. All right. I, I mean, great memories. Thanks for sharing. Uh, we have questions from our Stick to Wrestling audience. We said we're going to do a Mid-South show, and here we are. I'll tell you what, we'll start with you, Rico. Why did Bill Watts Wait. not like Jake Roberts? Uh, that's kind of hard. I mean, Jake has been uh, pretty open about why he hates Watts. Uh, now, why does Jake hate Pete? Watts? I don't know anything about this. Well, Jake, Jake has said in, in several interviews that he thinks Watts is a racist. He thinks uh, Watts is a thief. Um, he never really elaborates on that. Didn't Bill stick it to Jake on the 92 WCW contract? Well, you would know better than I. Um, you know, maybe that was the, the, the situation. I do know that Watts has uh, not been very complimentary to Jake, which, you know, get in line. But, uh, you know, he says that, you know, Jake is just not a guy to be trusted. He doesn't do business uh, the right way. And, you know, that's basically all I know about it. I wish I could give you the scoop, but I don't know. I mean, a lot of wrestlers did not like Watts. I mean, Watts, the the old saying about working Mid-South is you'd make twice as much as you'd make anywhere else and half as much as you should have made. Exactly. So, Sean, any thoughts on the Watts versus Roberts rivalry? The question never dawned on me because their personalities are so just bizarrely different that it just would never dawn on me they would have gotten along. But I could never think, I know there was something with the, con- when he came in, Bill came in with his cost-cutting program in 92. Jake was one of the guys he went after immediately. So, I mean, I, but there were all kinds of, and I remember that Jake wanted to use the snake bit and Bill got mad about that. I, but there was, there's nothing that would explain the visceral 
because yeah, they do say they don't like each other, but it's just yeah, because he's he's a liar, he's a thief, and you know he's a jerk, he's a racist. It just there's a visceral thing about it. This has to have something to do with Grizzly Smith. Yeah, I think he may be right about that. Grizz has a weird relationship with both of them. Good point. I mean, I, I think the biggest reason. I mean. Jake, supposedly from the time Honky Tonk Man hit him with that guitar and really messed him up, Jake was getting worse and worse as time went on. Um, And by the time he got to WCW in 92, he was a complete mess. And Watts brought him in anyway because, hey, you know, if, if you're desperate enough, you bring in a guy like Jake Roberts, who was a phenomenal performer, uh, just, you know, Left scorched earth. A little bit, yeah, he was a little bit unreliable. Yeah, to say the least. I mean, there is there is not a bridge unburned. (laughs) There you go. Well put, Sean. He Jake burned his bridge in the WWF. Then he went to WCW and more of the same. And then he went to Smoky Mountain, more of the same. And WWF brought him back, and it seemed like he was trying to get better, like mid nineties. And he seems like he's a lot better now. And you know, good for him. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Next question. We've got Jace Nakarado, big friend of the podcast. Bigger disappointment. Randy Colley is the nightmare North American champion or pushing the snowman as the next JYD. Let's talk about the nightmare as, as North American champion. Ricardo, did that ever make sense to you? Never. Never. And I, I have nothing against Randy Colley. I think he was a fine performer, but uh, I mean, it just left left me cold. Like, eh. yeah, there's no pizzazz, not a whole lot of charisma with that mask on. Just think about it. You had some of the most charismatic wrestlers, masked wrestlers in Mid-South. You had Mr. Olympia. You had the Grappler. You had the Super D, mm-hmm. right? You had Mr. Wrestling, too. And then you had the nightmare. Yeah, he just paled in comparison. At this point, I was not getting Mid-South on tape or on cable or anything like that. And I read about someone named The Nightmare as North American champion, which was one of the most prestigious titles out there. I mean, I really think it was right up there with the AWA title. It was the title of a major promotion. You know, it was it was it was I would say more prestigious than Mid-Atlantic's United States title. And they're putting it on an unknown, a masked guy who didn't even have, um, you know, Mr. Wrestling 2 had been around forever. The Grappler had been around Mid-South forever. And you're just throwing a mask on this guy. Ugh, yuck. Right. I think it would have been good is if they could have gotten Scott Irwin to put the mask back on and then come back in the Mid-South. But then again, you know, he had been on Georgia TV. But I think Super D possibly would have helped them uh, by being in that spot instead of Randy Colley. You know, it just to me, he didn't get over with me, and I'm not sure that he got over with anybody else. No, I mean, I I thought by by this was 1985, and by this point, the the era of the masked wrestler was kind of over. I mean, you know, if you have masked guys as jobbers on national TV like the WWF had, uh, as far as I know, WWF didn't have any masked wrestlers uh, being pushed. They, they didn't. You know, Mil Mascaris would come in every now and then in 1984, but that was it. Well, you know, if, you know, if that is indeed the case, you know, then 
I don't know. I don't know if it, if it was important to them that they have a mask guy. I don't know. But I think, you know, somebody else could have been put in an, into that spot. Somebody, anybody. Uh, I agree. I think it was an outdated concept by 1985. Now let's talk about the snowman. Hold on, one quick uh, aside on to the nightmare. Could it possibly be, I think this has something to do with the fact that Watts is basically just traumatized. That Randy Colley is the one guy that he knows, and Vince ended up taking him, but it was after the run was over. Randy Colley is the one guy that he's sure that he's not going to take. Same reason Zabisco got the AWA title. Man, when you get to that point, isn't it over? Yeah. Well, I just think he may have got traumatized by it, which explains now we can go into the pushing of the snowman. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my Ricardo, God. tell us, please tell us about your snowman experience as a fan of, of Mid-South Wrestling. It was obvious to me and probably to everybody else that this was JYD Jr. And it, it didn't work. I mean, he was a uh, he was an impressive looking guy. But when it got, you know, when it was time for him to do what was really important and what was really important, you know, one of the things that made uh, JYD so important was the gift of gab. And man, when they put that microphone in front of uh, the snowman, he just he couldn't do it. I mean, that interview he did on television, you know, after the confrontation with Dutch Mantel was, man, it was like, what's the name of the website that, that has, uh, it was it Botchamania? Yeah, it was it was botchamania level. It was horrible. It, it was. I mean, the snowman. He, like you said, he was a big, impressive-looking guy. But there were so many JYD juniors that I mean, it was almost a parody. I mean, George Wells was absolutely awful, and it's it's inexplicable how awful he was because he's a legitimate athlete. He played at Grambling, and he he is one of the worst wrestlers I've ever laid eyes on. And Watts tried to replace JYD with him. Well, you know, I, I get that he he was desperate at that point. I mean, the biggest star in the territory had just taken off. But like I said, when you start replacing your top guy with somebody who's that similar, um, you're already in trouble. I think at that point he may have, you know, the burnout might have uh, started. I think maybe he. Uh, saw the writing on the wall that, you know, the territory days were coming to an end, you know, which is evidenced by him starting the UWF, I guess like a year and a half later, maybe. It just didn't feel organic. JYD, Jim Duggan, Magnum TA, all of those stars uh, that he created, if, you know, they felt organic. It was real. These other guys, you know, it was just like putting a suit on him and hoping it would fit. Yeah, totally agree. And leading to the next question from Lazo Takis, I hope I pronounced his name correctly. Oh, John, one quick issue about the um, – would it have helped Watts if they got – they needed a Pedro Morales. When they went to New Orleans, they opened up an ethnic market that he still needed to fill, which is why they kept running in people like you know JYD Juniors. They needed they needed to still have that ethnic audience, but they needed somebody a little different, like Pedro was for Bruno in the early seventies. Is there anybody like that that could have been you know that, that could have uh, been used for this and, and to replace him? Someone a little different. You know, it's going to sound crazy because I really love this question and I thought about it. If he had had his head screwed on right, if he had wanted to leave Memphis, I don't think you pick a black guy. 
I think he picked somebody like the Dream Machine, Troy Graham. I hmm. think Troy Graham would have gotten those so huge, particularly in New Orleans, with just just the rap that he had. I don't know, you know, about his work in the ring. Some people say, well, you know, he's a little bit light in the ring, but man, just knowing the people here and seeing Troy, uh, Troy Graham like uh, on the Memphis tapes, I think he would have gotten over huge, and it would have been. He would have been different, but I think he still would have been able to connect to the people here. See, this is why I love having guests like Ricardo Coleman, because I believe you, because you were a fan of Mid-South Wrestling in New Orleans. Like, it's in your veins. You know what you're talking about. If I think of Troy as the dream machine, I'm like, oh, maybe if I think of Troy as Troy, uh, what was the character he played? Uh, Troy Troy T. Tyler, I think it was. Then I'm like, okay, I'm definitely starting to see this now. Because that's the dialect you're talking about. Yeah. Sean, let, I, I'm, I'm putting you on the spot here, but as I speak, try, if you can at all, try to come up with one of your own. Ricardo's got the crazy one that uh, Troy Graham would have gotten over in New Orleans. My crazy one, and I believe this. I don't believe it. I know it. If you had brought Tommy Rich up here in 80, 81, he would have gotten over huge. And people are like, and everyone's listening now is like, whoa, he's too Southern. Yeah, that would have been his charm. Tommy Rich would have gotten over huge up here. Sean, do you have one? Gino Hernandez. Um, you know, oh, I, I, I want to talk about this. I heard a podcast from Davey O'Hannon who is a longtime WWF guy uh, back in the 70s and early 80s. Good guy to hang out with on Facebook. I listened to a podcast he had. Gina Hernandez came up here in 1977, and it looked like he was going to get a big push, and they, they had him do one taping, and they sent him home. And for over 40 years, I was wondering what the hell happened, and Davey O'Hannon had the answer. He said that Gino Hernandez came in the dressing room and acted like he was a big shot in front of guys like Bruno Sammartino, Vince McMahon Jr., and Gorilla Monsoon. He would say, you know, instead of just being humble, hello, Mom, Gino Hernandez, nice to meet you. It was, hi, Gino Hernandez. I was the United States champion up in Detroit. I was a big deal here. And he just turned everyone off and they sent him home. Part of what made him great, though. Right. So essentially, he just acted like Tully Blanchard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Except his dad wasn't the promoter. Uh, right. All right. So, Ricardo, any wrestler on earth who would have been best suited to replace Junkyard Dog? Troy Graham. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Do you have a Troy second Graham. place? Set, who's the silver, medal, silver medalist here? Well, they already had Duggan. So, Duggan was the second logical choice. But the third, and they probably wouldn't have been able to get him. And I know, you know, there are the variables we all know about it. Kerry Von Eric. Yeah, he was big in New Orleans. He made evented against Ric Flair a few times in Mid South. Right, because we got we started getting world class in '83, and so Kerry was as big of a star as anybody. I remember an episode. I'm trying to think. It was '85. They had Kerry come on TV, and the place was going nuts for him. Oh, my God, yes. The women, you know, the kids, everybody loved Kerry. Uh, so Kerry would have immediately become number one. 
I was just going to say, it's Kerry in 1985. Of course, the place is going nuts for him. Sean, any thoughts on a wrestler best suited to replace JYD? How about Terry Gordy? Gordy couldn't talk, but Gordy. Or, had how, about, was, or, or how about my, how about Michael and Gordy flipping face? They, you know what? If Watts hadn't sold out, I mean, they had already basically turned them babyface in the spring of 1987. Could it have worked? I mean, I remember when they turned Michael Hayes in Georgia, and I was thinking, there's no way. There is no way this guy is going to get over as a babyface, you know, prissy sissy Michael Hayes with his you know blonde hair. And he got over like crazy in Georgia. Yeah, and, no they, and they did him no favors in that booking either. No, they didn't. You're right. But, I, you know, no. Michael Hayes, he grows the beard and all of a sudden he's David Lee Roth. And I, I it could have worked easily. My concern is the fact that, again, I think it goes back to guy, using guys like the Snowman. And I think Watts is traumatized at this point and has it in his head, whether it should be or not, that he can't be giving his title to guys that he thinks going to take off. So you have to sit there and look at, you know, you know, the free birds aren't going because of what happened. Um, another guy, I guess, uh, rolled a dice on a very green as grass, Ron Simmons. Uh, you, Simmons didn't yeah. start until 85. Yeah. So, uh, did uh, Simmons start a little bit later than that? Maybe 86, 87? Uh, I, I think fall 85. I, I know he was a full-timer okay. in Florida, like in 86. Yeah, yeah. I, okay. I, that's what I was saying. I was I was thinking of him like right after he started because I'm, I'm thinking someone you can get some runway with who's just so green that you're going to get away with it. Maybe. Yeah. I, mean, I think he would have been another yeah. JYD Jr., to be honest with you. Probably. Yeah. I, I still... Yeah. I agree with that. I still say you have to do something different, like the Pedro to Bruno dynamic. I mean, my feeling is if there's any wrestler on earth who's best suited to replace JYD, I have always believed, always believed that when Watt turned Butch Reed on Junkyard Dog, this is like spring 1983, that the grand plan was they, they had always planned on turning him back babyface and making him the king of Mid-South. I also think that in the 80s, in order to be like the big-time babyface, being a heel is part of that transition. Like they, You have to be a heel, and the fans have to want to make you to turn babyface, and that's the key to becoming a big babyface. You see, I can only speak about New Orleans, but I think it would have taken a while, well, it did take a while for people to warm up to read because I think he was so heinous <laughs> that people just, they just didn't know what to make of him. You know, you have to remember that, that JYD butchery feud had a lot of overtones mm-hmm. that, that that's lost on a lot of people, a lot of cultural overtones, a lot of the things that Reed would say, which, you know, those lines were fed to him by Ernie Ladd. You know, people kind of took those things to heart. And um, so it took a while for people to warm up to Butch Reed. But, you know, overall, I think he got over pretty well. I don't know. I mean, I think I think he did well. I think he did well. But, uh, you know, there had to be some other guys I would have tried out first. We're asking the impossible question, though, at the end of the day, because you're not replacing the junkyard dog. It'd be the equivalent of the discussion of who do you replace Hogan with? You're not replacing Hogan. You, Hogan was the guy you had to have in that spot at that time. Same thing with JYD. There is no replacement for JYD in the early 
it is in New Orleans. Well, I've got a couple of no. questions for Ricardo. Number one, there has been a long-standing theory out there that when Butch Reed finally turned at the end of 1984, that he didn't get over the way he should have, at least in part due to the fact that the fans hated him too much. And you kind of already talked about that a little bit, but do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, I think it's very fair to say. You know, a lot of the things that he said, that he would say in interviews, again, people here take that stuff very, very seriously. I think I spoke about it uh, to a good friend of mine. A lot of uh, the development of Butch Reed as a heel was with the help of Ernie Ladd. And Ernie Ladd, was a brilliant guy and he used something called colorism in order to get himself over as a heel within the black community. And so certain things that he would say in his interviews that would, uh, certain cultural cues that would resonate with black folks. And so when Reed would come out and he would call dog and uncle Tom, or he would, he would say things like dog was the, or he would talk, but his nappy hair, you know, that's kind of getting close to the line. And so it took a while for people to, to get over that. Makes perfect sense. So I think that there, I, I think there's some truth to that theory. I, I mean, that makes perfect sense. I've, and thank you for shedding light on that because, you know, I look at Butch Reed. I mean, when he turned baby to me, when he turned baby face in 1984, I mean, I look at that guy, I'm like, this guy could be the Michael Jordan of pro wrestling. He could be huge, and it just never really happened for him. You know, I think he has some personal things going on. I think, yes. I think wrestling, which uh, which was, you know, alluded to um, by several people in different interviews, you know, but Reed, at that time, was still hungry. He was still working out. You know, he always worked out. He always kept himself in shape, but I think Reed was still pretty ambitious within the wrestling business. And so, you know, he should have knocked that out of the park. You know, as far as why he didn't do it, you know, we can speculate, but, you know, we'll never know unless he unless he starts talking. Yeah, I mean, I look at 87, 88 Butchery in the WWF, and he's just not as chiseled as he was in Mid-South. I mean, he looked like, you know, he was on the Herschel Walker diet of doing 500 sit-ups a day. Oh, my God. Yeah. When Butchery came to Mid-South, we marveled over this guy's physique. Like, how can a guy that big move so fast? Yeah. Uh, he was extremely athletic. And so he got over really, really quickly um, when he first came to Mid-South because of his body. Um, not necessarily because of what he would say in interviews, because he was pretty tentative back then. So, you know, Reed... He should have been one. He should have been one of the greatest. I mean, he had a great career. Don't get me wrong. I mean, Doom is one of my all-time favorite tag teams, and his heel run in Mid South was fantastic. But you know, he didn't live up to his full potential. No, I mean, I, there is an alternative universe where Butch Reed was a long-term NWA champion. I really believe that. Like starting early '84, maybe late '84. I mean, he had it in him. And, you know, let's come right out and say it. I mean, I think America, the world, was ready for a black world's heavyweight champion. I think people would have gotten behind Butch Reed the same way people got behind Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Mike Tyson, etc. 
I think something that Bill Watts said once uh, makes a lot of sense. He said the fact that there are no black world champions in wrestling was like, uh, you know, you talk about kayfabe, but it was a it was a chip off, a red flag that wrestling wasn't on the up and up because you know you can look at most of the sports in which black athletes participate and they've they've dominated, uh, not just dominated, but they they have uh, redefined the sport. Yeah. And so the fact that there were no uh, black world champions in wrestling, you know, just chipped you off that hey. Why wouldn't a guy like Butch Reed be the world's heavyweight champion? Just look at him. Just look at him in the ring. And so, you know, it's kind of hard to get into these discussions because, you know, you're going to have people who are going to say, oh, you know, you know, are you sure it was racial? But what would you, you know, what other reason could you come up with for him not even smelling the world title? There, there isn't one. I mean, in the early 80s, my friends and I, would wonder, you know, where is pro wrestling's Reggie Jackson? Where is pro wrestling's Ricky Henderson? Where is pro wrestling's Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, etc.? I mean, it, it made no sense. Well, they had a bunch of Larry Bird. <laughs> 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 a bunch of Larry Bird. <laughs> there you go. Let's come right out and say it. Larry Bird was the outlier. You know, he, he <laughs> really was. I mean, I, I don't know but, what to say. But let's, but, uh, let's but, keep it real. Let's keep it real. Larry Bird was badass. Yes. We, we, no, no, no shade of Larry Bird. But, you know, at that particular time, Larry Bird, you're right, was an outlier. And I think the wrestling business, you know, a lot of guys within the wrestling business were not as forward thinking as maybe Watts was. And Watts has his issues as well. Yeah. But Watts had, you know, Watts hit the nail right on the head. If you're going to maintain kayfabe and you're going to tell people that, hey, this shit is, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cuss, but, you know, if you're going to tell people that this is real, then you need to have it reflect what other sports are doing. Just a little bit. I completely agree 100%. I mean, like I said, every other sport, you had dominant black athletes wrestling you had a handful they were a distinct minority and that and that mm -hmm. just didn't look right you take territories like memphis no shade to king cobra you know he was a great wrestler no he uh, wasn't great technician <laughs> well, i think I, I think he was good in the ring i think he was pretty good yeah, he for what he was i think he was, he was he was decent but you knew that he wasn't going to win any major titles you knew that he wasn't going to be in the mix. You know, it was just like you knew that wrestling wasn't on the up and up, but you also knew that, hey, there's a little bit of show business involved here. You know, but it's certain guys you believe in. But when it comes to, like, black wrestlers, you you know, you would watch these, these different territories, and they would have, like, a handful of black wrestlers, and these guys were always mid-carters, or they were always jobbers to the stars. And I don't, I don't like using the word jobber. You know, they were, you know, they were mid carters. And so when you watch that, you know, it's kind of like, man, I want somebody, I want a champion that looks like me too. Yeah. No pun intended. No, I, I, I mean, look at, look at JCP. They are predominantly promoting in the Carolinas, Virginia, and Georgia. Like 
Where were the black wrestlers in JCP? You had Pez Watley, and that's it. Unless I'm forgetting Shaska, Shasta, Shaska, whatever. What was his name? Shaska, Shasta? Um, Shaska. Shaska. No, we made this joke oh. the other week was um, yeah, when, I was <laughs> when they had Doom under the mask. Who did they think they were kidding? They had Ranger Ross and those two guys. Who else could they have been? You know, it had to be oh, you know, Simmons and Butch. But that's how small the roster was. You only had three guys of note. You needed a badass black babyface and ass kicker. Which is what's missing from wrestling now. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say that? <laughs> I'm sorry. What I, I, What is missing from wrestling now? A, a black, badass, ass-kicking babyface. It would get over, but you know what? Vince doesn't allow ass-kicking babyfaces anymore. I mean, he, it, the WWF doesn't get it. Remember how they started pushing Rocky Maivia before he was The Rock? Every babyface is just this candy-ass babyface. They had, I thought, a million-dollar product, and she just happens to be black, in, uh, what's her name, Bailey's best friend. Help me out here. Sasha Banks. Sasha Banks. They had a million-dollar, a billion-dollar baby right there when she was a heel. She had a great act. And I, I was watching this, and I'm like, as soon as this turns baby face, this is going to be huge. And they turned her baby face, and they made her a candy ass. That's their formula. They don't yeah. know what they're doing. She was the Nicki Minaj character. That's exactly who they modeled her after. And I, she oh, needed she needed to be a badass baby face. You know, if, if you could swing that. And when they turned her, I you know I paid attention to the Sasha. For obvious reasons, um, yeah. but you know she. I'm kidding. Oh yes, yes, yes. Of course, of course. <laughs> but she was perfect the way she was. You just tweak the character a little bit, and bam, you you know you got a license to print money. But you know they have a formula. It's it's a factory. The WWE is a candy factory. Yes. And so, just like when you hang out in the candy factory, like I used to when I was a kid. Right. Whenever they would make candy that didn't quite look like the other pieces of candy, they threw the candy out. And this is exactly what happens in WWE. Then this is exactly what what happens in WWE. If you don't uh, fit the formula of what they want, they don't want you. It's true, and it's a shame. And I spent way too much time on WWE today. (laughs) Sean, you had something to say. I just, from Ricardo's logic there, I just had an inspiration on the guy to replace JYD. Bad News Allen. Oh, as yeah. A, as a baby face, as a Steve Austin-esque baby face. Good choice. Excellent choice. Excellent now, choice. Let me throw this in. I agree with you, Sean, 100% as a Steve Austin-esque baby face. You could not have brought Bad News Allen in as a babyface. You have to have him as a heel for a year at least, and then you turn him, and then you have that license to print money. Okay. Then you, that, that's fine. You, you bring him in and run him in against uh, Duggan. Well, it's similar to what they did with Savannah Jack, which I think they turned Savannah Jack a little too quickly. Savannah Jack came in as a heel. He was in, the, he was in Agbar stable. Yep. And then and then they turned him. And Savannah Jack was okay. But Bad News Allen would have been 
awesome, great choice. And he was working uh, Florida in 86 and 87, so it's not like he was unavailable. Right. I mean, I, it, you know, that was a time I, I had no idea that he even worked Florida. I thought, you know, he was primarily a Calgary guy. He was. But he, he was in Florida like uh, late 86, early 87. Sean, you wanted to get something in. I just had a quick question for Ricardo uh, about – I was thinking about um, how when you mentioned guys who just kind of tweaked the character a little bit, that made me think of Ted DiBiase because most guys who like turn peel and face like a Lawler or a Flair, they just tweak the character a little bit. Ted just completely redoes the entire thing. Ted is an entirely different guy as a heel as he is as a face. I mean, how you know what? how is how how do you, how is he so effective at getting the fans to you know go along with that complete reformation of him, his character? You know, you know what was interesting about about Ted because I thought the same thing, but I saw this video from I think it was from Houston, and it was during a feud with Murdoch. You know, after he got injured by Murdoch, and Great Angle. And DiBiase pulled out the gloves. He was in trouble. And just as he did when he was a heel, he pulled out the glove and he used it on Murdoch. And I thought, wow, he's a baby face now, but he's still using those heel tactics. And I thought it was so brilliant. I don't know if they did it all around the territory, but I thought that was pretty interesting. But Ted, Ted was just a professional. You know, he was, he, he understood what you needed as a baby face and you know he he did it i do like the fact that uh later on during the freebirds feud uh in the uwf he brought the glove back if you remember so that was like that was like lawless goatee whenever he had the glove he knew something was coming up exactly and so um he you know he was able to to keep a little bit of an edge which is uh, difficult, you know, as a baby face, because, you know, people love you and, you know, you have some fans that expect you to um, obey the, all the rules and regulations. But, you know, the best baby faces to me were those who, uh, like Lala, you know, guys who wouldn't mind, you know, pulling the tights if he needed to, you know, but that, you know, you were fighting fire with fire. Exactly. I mean, Ted DiBiase, his turn was memorable. I mean, it was like he he just decided, hey, this is who I'm going to be from now on. Ah, let me see. Rob Blackbear, greatest cornet and Midnight Express moment, which I'm assuming is strictly from Mid-South, which is fine. I, I thought that they did their best work in Mid-South. Oh, absolutely. We hated cornet. Cornette was right up there with uh, genital herpes and uh, possibly colon cancer. You know, he did his job well. I think my favorite moment would probably be a tie. Uh, the ether angle, you know, where he put Robert Gibson out with the ether. And, the, you know, the match was great. The stakes were high. It was $50,000 versus the Mid-South Tag Team titles. And uh, the finish was great. The second angle that I loved was when they destroyed the Fantastics with those steel chairs. Like, it's absolutely one of the most violent scenes I've seen in wrestling. What did you yeah. think? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the thing with the Fantastics was, was incredible. It, it's funny how much we've changed over the past, like, 35, 40 years. I mean, we look at those chair shots, and Bob, those chairs were not worked. They were real steel chairs. And Bobby Eaton 
bent the seat of that chair over Bobby Fulton's head. And now we'd be horrified over that. I'd be horrified over that. And back in the day, we'd look at that tape and we'd, you know, just look at it and laugh and say, wow, Mid-South was awesome. Mid-South was absolutely awesome. (laughs) Sean, your favorite Mid-South moment. It's going to be the fantastic moment, but to be more specific, it is the speech that Cornette gives right before it happens. This was at the contract (laughs) signing. They did the whole deal, and Cornette is making clarifications on the contract that it's like the fans know something's up. And he's like dragging this on by adding little things and asking little questions. And basically what he was doing was he was getting a Grizzly Smith admit that what he was about to do was legal. So uh, yes. as he's like going this, but what he's also doing is he's like dragging it out. You can hear the fans getting aggravated because they know something's coming. And, and Jim's taking forever getting to this. And it's, it was just a marvelous little piece of pacing. Do you know why we knew something was coming? Because he does this all because the time. We- he does it all the time, but we saw powder start to appear, like in Dennis Conjure's hand. Like if you watch the, the video, oh. just check uh, it out. It's like it's, it's like a it's like a bunch of powder, and I don't think he was, you know, trying to powder his nose. You know, I don't think he was conducting a deal in the middle of the ring. I think you know they were getting ready to do something, do some bad business. I have two favorite Mid South Jim Cornette Midnight Express moments. Number one, the Fantastics. They're going to have a match where Jim Cornette is going to be placed in a straitjacket, and they demonstrate the straitjacket in the ring. And what made it so great is the fans are screaming, no, don't do this. Don't demonstrate the straitjacket and render yourself helpless because here comes the Midnight Express. And of course, that's exactly what happened. My number one, it is on WWE Network, the March 17th, 1984 version of Mid-South Wrestling, where they have the match where Mr. Wrestling 2 turns on Magnum TA, leaves him dead in the match against the Midnight Express in a match where the losers get five lashes. So two's gone. TA takes his five lashes. And he's got to take five more, and he's he's gotten the crap beat out of him by two and the Midnights, and now he's been beaten with a strap five times. So Terry Taylor comes out and volunteers to take the last five lashes on Magnum's account, and it must have taken them a half an hour to get these five lashes in. I mean, the Midnights and Cornette just taunted Taylor ruthlessly, and then Taylor had to take the fifth lashing and he took it from Jim Cornette. And watch what happens after the fifth lash, after Cornette slams him with the belt. The Midnight Express, the way they just immediately vacate that ring. They were gone in a nanosecond. And I thought it was so funny and so heelish. It was phenomenal. Absolutely. It was a good piece of business. All right. Last one we've got from Ian Totten. Town in Massachusetts. If Watts hadn't tried replacing JYD, could Duggan have been the top babyface? Ricardo. I well, kind of thought he, he was. was. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was out the he door was. right afterwards. JYD, as much as a fan I, I was of him in Mid South, towards the end, he was definitely starting to lose momentum. In Mid-South, I mean, and there's an expression like your top baby face in most territories is going to have a five-year run, and then you're going to, you need to replace him. 
Bruno Sammartino was an exception. Dusty Rhodes was an exception. Even Dusty Rhodes, towards the end of his run in Florida, I mean, was stale. And I thought towards the end, JYD was a, a little bit stale in like 83, 84. What do you think? Well, I think, you know, it was time for Dog to go. We all know he had some issues. I think the weight gain affected him. I think his act was starting to get stale. And I think, you know, it was a good move for him. Uh, not necessarily the best move for Watts, but I think it was a good move for him. And Duggan was ready. By that time, you know, especially after he came back from Florida, Duggan was really, really over. And I think it was, you know, it was Duggan's time to shine. You know, Mid-South needed to evolve. And um, Duggan provided a way for them to do that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, he was a Watts kind of guy. He was a legitimate, I mean, unbelievably tough guy. Uh, he was a linebacker at SMU and Watts, again, the formula, they bring him in as a heel and then he turns baby face and he was over big time. Sean, please share your thoughts. Again, it, yeah, it, that was definitely, he was the guy and he was the most over baby face at this point. But the concern goes back to the, you know, your original problem, which is the fact that he was going to end up getting grabbed. So whoever you put at the top of the card was getting snagged. If they it all got over, it was a catch 22. Um, yes and no, but at some point Watts had his wrestlers under contract and Duggan legendarily got out of his contract by being just an amazing pain in the ass the whole year of 1986. And Watts finally capitulated and got rid of him after Duggan did jobs, I think for one man gang around the horn. But anyway, this wraps up another edition of Stick to Wrestling. Ricardo, thank you very much for coming on. You were a great guest. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. All right. We're definitely going to do this again. Sean, thank you for everything you do for Stick to Wrestling. Our convivial co-host, I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, for all the great work he does. And this has been a presentation of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Oh,